We are at Polis Podcast. That's P O L I S P O C P O D. Sorry, at <laughs> Polis Podcast. That's P O oh. at Polis Podcast. That's P O L I S P O D C A S T. There we go. That's what it is. I can spell. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode eight of the Polis Podcast. I'm Ben. And I'm John. And today, we're going to have a conversation about Airbnb, hotels, buildings, and and residences that aren't necessarily houses, apartments, things that are sort of short-term or medium-term or maybe even long-term rentals, those sorts of rooms that are a little bit different than your traditional housing stock. And sort of what set this off was this week I was reading through some articles and I found one from City Lab titled, Barcelona Finds a Way to Control Its Airbnb Market. It got me thinking about the role of Airbnb in cities, what it should be, and how cities should respond to it. And I think a lot of the conversation around Airbnb right now is, does it increase rents? You know, what does it do to the housing market? It's what people are most angry about, certainly. Right, right. Exactly, exactly. And I think from all the research that I've done, there's a lot of evidence out there that sort of points to, yeah, this probably does increase rents, especially in certain areas of cities. It would be hard for it not to increase rent. You're right. taking right. some housing off the market. So you're right. reducing supply of rental apartments. So rent yeah. would obviously increase. Yeah, exactly. Although to that point, I did see some studies that said that it increases it marginally, but you know, marginally can be a lot of money for certain people. So it's just kind of relative. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that what there is no debate on is that Airbnb changes the housing market in a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely. And because it is a relatively new service, I think it started in 2008, cities have been wrestling with how to deal with Airbnb and also its impact on hotels for a while now. But there hasn't been sort of a standard solution or a standard way of dealing with Airbnb. And I thought it'd be interesting to maybe talk about what Barcelona has done and then sort of just open the floor to like your thoughts and my thoughts. We can discuss uh, the pros and cons. Because you're right. A lot of different cities have grappled with very different solutions to these things. Like you see Berlin, you see New York, you see San Francisco, all of them have their own kind of handmade solutions to how they're trying to negotiate and deal with Airbnb. Right. Right. So sort of to go into it for Barcelona, what this article is talking about is that on June 1st, Airbnb and the city of Barcelona came to an agreement that says that Barcelona officials, so city officials, are able to access data about what is being listed around the city. So where the listings are, maybe how much they're going for, maybe who the landlords are. Yeah. And this seems to, at least from how this article is making out to sound, uh, this seems to be relatively new in the in the approach into dealing with Airbnb. Yeah, I think as with most internet companies and technology companies generally, they don't want to share their data particularly right. easily. You kind of have to pry it out of their hands. <laughs> right. It's their bread and butter. But- I don't know. I'm with you in that you might have to pry it out of their hands, but I don't see any reason for necessarily holding on to like top level, very, very, very minimal top level data. Like in terms of the geography. Yeah. We have this many listings in this neighborhood, right? Right. I don't even know if they even shared that amount. And the fact that Airbnb, which has notoriously held out on sharing data, is now sharing it with Barcelona kind of goes to the fact that Barcelona basically gave them kind of an ultimatum and was basically saying that like, we're going to find you or we're going to shut down your ability. We're going to boot you. Yeah. Yeah. Basically to do business in our city. And as the article talks about, there are entire parts of the city that they call quote unquote tourist ghettos where residents, the very few who still live there are surrounded by a lot of empty buildings because, you know, they're just be waiting to be rented out or people who come in, in the and out. season more so I would think. Yeah. Right. But then during the regular season or whatever, maybe the, maybe like summer, you know, you have a constant influx of people who are just turning, who are just cycling in and cycling out exactly thank you that's what i was looking for they just cycle in and out of the same house and that's your next door neighbor if people are coming for their vacation they probably are going to be misbehaving they might be you know drinking a lot or really loud they come back at night you know everyone's going to be different and it's really hard to deal with people who are not there for a long period of time sure and additionally and this is kind of one of my concerns about airbnb because i've also read stories about other places around the world that have had this issue if you have entire sections of cities where the majority or a huge amount of that neighborhood is rentals, the neighborhood community declines because you just, you don't have one anymore. It's just row after row of hotels. Right. The cohesion kind of disappears. Right. There's no sort of life. There needs to be, there needs to be a balance between the two. So where do you come down on this? Well, let's take it to the most basic level. Right. Do you think Airbnb is fundamentally a bad thing that should just be wiped out? No, I don't. 
Okay, um, so it has some think, place. Right, right. It absolutely has places. Okay. I mean, its marketing goes a lot by use Airbnb to help you economically, to help you stay in your home. Because you can rent it out when you're when you're on vacation. You can rent it out like a room downstairs that you never use. And you can use that to supplement sure. your income, have a better life. That absolutely happens for certain groups of people. And I wouldn't want to take away someone's ability to do that, especially since it most likely would happen without Airbnb. Airbnb just makes it easier. It facilitated. And they probably increase your revenue from it. Right, exactly. And just by making it easier for you, you don't have to do any of the work. You just put the listing up and someone finds it rather than like yeah. sort of a shady Craigslist offering, which those still exist off of Airbnb. And additionally, I think that you know increasing tourism, I think tourism in general is a good thing. Okay, Tourists are good for cities. They can be destructive at a certain point, but that's like you know, anything else. But I think in general, like increasing tourism to your city is probably a good thing. The vast majority of cities can certainly increase without a problem. Right, right, right. And the vast majority of homeowners, business people would want all the money coming in from tourists. Yeah. But there has to be that balance. So at the basic level, no, I don't want to see Airbnb go away. Okay. Yeah, me either. <laughs> I think it's been a major step forward. Right. And I've used it a couple of times. And of the of the times that I've used it, the hosts that I've met have been great. They've given me local restaurants to go to. They've yeah. taken me out. They've like made me coffee in the morning. Even though I didn't speak their language, it was just really cool to meet someone from that city. And whenever people travel, I push them to stay in hostels rather than hotels because you actually get to meet more people. Yeah, of course. especially in Europe. Uh, you know, but if, if you know if hotels your thing, They're all over in thing, Asia, or Latin America. Sure, sure. But Airbnb offers that, especially if the homeowner still lives there, then it offers an even closer experience to people who actually live in that city. It comes more closer to like couch surfing. It's much closer to couch surfing, yes. Couch surfing for everybody that doesn't know, there's a right. website with a massive community around the world of people that go and stay for free on other people's couches. All yeah, the it's, it's Airbnb for yeah, free. <laughs> it's it a precursor to Airbnb. But yeah, it's like free Airbnb for poor young people, generally speaking. Right. And for the most part, I think it's safe. I mean, it, I guess it wouldn't exist if it weren't. But um, I've only heard good things about it from people that use it. Yeah, you always hear like horror stories from like, I heard of somebody who heard of somebody who did right. something. But like, I've never actually known anyone who ever had any issues with it. Right. So I guess like the point here is that the fact that it that Airbnb, you know, sort of facilitates that um, makes it a little bit more legitimate for people that don't feel like couch surfing is legitimate for any reason. You know, it does that. And I think creating those connections between travelers is a really good thing. Well, and this is something that I think is interesting because since you brought up couch surfing, I am always bothered by arguments around when you can do something for free and it's perfectly fine for you to do something for free. And then people want to outlaw you doing it for money. So you see this with donating blood, you see this with donating organs, you see this with prostitution and sex and things like that, where somehow if money gets involved, suddenly it's a terrible, terrible thing that will destroy the world. And this is the same kind of thing where no one's talking about restricting couch surfing. No one would think about restricting, like letting someone stay in your house for free. Right. But as soon as you start making money off of it, off of this thing that you own, people become much less open to the idea. Although the caveat here, I think, is that for couch surfing... From what I understand, the owner of the property or the renter or mm. whoever pays for the property is always there. Whereas an Airbnb... That's true. There is a difference. Isn't, yeah. It isn't always. And... Most of the time, I would say the Airbnb person is not there. Right. And the only reason why they're not there is because they trust that the people aren't going to steal their stuff and mess up their house. And they trust that because you, as the renter of the Airbnb property, enter into that agreement with Airbnb and the owner and say that like you are liable. Whereas in couch surfing, it's more of a informal agreement. Yeah, who knows what's going to happen. That's true. Right. And there, there's no like sort of legal framework. Maybe there could be. Well, an Airbnb offers insurance over and above. And like you can't have an organization offer insurance like Airbnb. Like if your apartment gets absolutely ransacked, Airbnb, I believe, has an insurance program where they will compensate you for some of the damages and things like sure. that. Sure, sure. Couchsurfing, because you don't pay couchsurfing for anything, they wouldn't right. obviously be able to do that sort of thing. Right. And that's why, because of that framework, because it is profitable and safer to rent out your house, I'm sure there are thousands more Airbnb listings and couchsurfing listings in, in any mm. city. That's definitely true. And because of that, Airbnb does in fact take housing stock off of the market in order to be used as sort of an amateur rental property. And couch surfing would never do that. So I think that's that's the issue. True. But it's also interesting that exactly what you're saying is the issue is that it's just been too successful. It's too liked <laughs> by people. People want to do it too much. 
It's always funny well, when that's anything, the kind of core of the problem is it's working too well. Yeah, but okay. I don't know. I wouldn't say that the problem is that it's working too well. I would say the problem is it's working so well that it's causing external issues. Okay. And maybe, you know, maybe too much of a good thing that statement does apply here. Potentially. But I guess to get to this point about Barcelona and like how to deal with cities. Yes. By sharing data and by allowing Barcelona to see where the listings are and maybe how much they're going for or who's listing it, the government can have more control over what neighborhoods are allowed to have more listings and therefore they can potentially adjust and compensate for too many in one place or not enough in another and maybe potentially, you know, because this is new, we don't know if it actually is going to help or not. But hopefully, they can help the housing market in that city as well as reduce the amount of quote unquote tourist ghettos. I don't know. I thought this was a really interesting approach. I know that Airbnb, just to list off some of the other things that Airbnb has done or cities have done with Airbnb, I know that in certain cities like New York and San Francisco, where housing is really bad, they've instituted, it's like a one owner, one property law, where essentially, yeah. If you're going to rent out your property, you can only rent out one at a time. You can't be an owner on multiple listings because at that point, you're a landlord. And at that point, you're a landlord not paying taxes because in a lot of cities, Airbnb listings don't pay hotel taxes because they're technically not considered hotels. So in San Francisco, they do, I believe. Yeah. So in some cities, they do. I know that in some cities have cracked down on it, but in other cities, they haven't. And that's what I'm trying to get to sort of this conversation is like, there's just not one sort of standard approach. And I was curious what your thoughts were in terms of, you know, especially with this new development out of Barcelona, do you think this is a good thing? How much control do you think cities should have on regulating their own housing market versus how much space should the free market have to to do what it wants to do? Yeah. So I think Airbnb should be regarded closer to having a long-term rental in your apartment than it should be to a hotel. I know that functionally it works more like a hotel for the most part, but Looking at this in a long-term sense, I don't think that's where it will end up necessarily. And essentially, my thinking on it is, let's take the actual company of Airbnb out of it and just take you as the individual proprietor, the individual owner of the property, right? There shouldn't be any restriction on you renting a house for two years. There shouldn't be any restriction for you renting a house for one year. There shouldn't be any restriction for you renting a house for one month or one week. I don't see why there should be any difference between those because fundamentally, you're doing the same thing. Now, a hotel, you could argue, is something different. Hotels have restaurants, some places, hotels have casinos, hotels have bars and all sorts of different things. They are truly a different thing than having a house or an apartment. And so the product is different. I think that's why Airbnb is differentiated so effectively. But I think Airbnb rentals should be considered more like renting an apartment. Now, when you're talking about the data and the Barcelona thing specifically, a lot of cities, if a homeowner rents a house to somebody, you have to register it with the city and you have to say who's living there. I'm not sure that that's overly invasive. If you have that for all properties, I think that that's fine. You know, And if Barcelona wants to say, look, Airbnb, you have to have who list who the hosts are, just like we have to know who you know anybody who would be renting out an apartment would be, that makes sense. Like, I have no problem with that necessarily. Now, the hiccup there is that they're looking to use that, as you said, to restrict the number of apartments in given neighborhoods, which means they're not really just trying to have access to the data. They're trying to utilize the data to curtail people's ability to rent their apartments. And that is where I start to have issues with this. And so generally speaking, I think people should be free to rent their apartments or their houses to whoever they want, whenever they want, for as long as they want. And to go back to this like long-term, short-term rental, if you look at it kind of maybe not historically, but over the last hundred years, long-term rentals have always been dramatically cheaper than short-term. If you go stay in a hotel, it's going to cost you a premium, like multiples of what a long-term rental would be in terms of a day-to-day basis, right? So if you stayed at a hotel for a month, you're going to pay five times what you would stay for staying in an apartment for a month. Airbnb gives us the potential to move into a world where that difference is kind of erased, or at least it's lessened, right? Because there's obviously still costs if you have to give the key to the new person every week or what have you. But the difference in the cost of staying in a place for a year versus staying in a place for three months with Airbnb starts to shrink. Now, in most countries, you can't really rent an apartment for three months, at least not normal apartments. Like it's, it's not possible. It's not available. There's no potential there. But lots of people that move seasonally or maybe want to see if they want to move to a city and move there for a month or something like that, 
having the opportunity to do that and not having it be extraordinarily expensive, I think is extremely valuable. And when you look at a lot of the other options, like when you're looking at home away or you're looking at house sitters where you, again, go in for free to watch somebody's house while they're on vacation or something like that, or house swap where you can swap your house and let them come stay in like your country and you go to their country or something like that. There are lots of different innovative approaches that are coming out in terms of how people can travel more cheaply or move around and have different models of how they're living and where they're living. And I think all of that is for the good. To the extent that we say, no, people always have to have annual leases. Or you look at some countries, like in Germany, it's standard to have multiple year leases. It's hard to get a one-year lease in a lot of places in Germany. And you look at places like China, where if you get an apartment anywhere in China, generally you have to pay three months up front. Those sorts of things are restrictive on people's ability to move around and their flexibility. And I think Airbnb adds the potential to have a lot more flexibility, which I think is really valuable. Like, I don't see why anybody renting an Airbnb is worse than somebody renting an apartment for a year. I don't see why people renting an apartment for a year should be protected against those terrible Airbnb people. They're all people renting accommodation. Seems fine. I guess. And and interestingly, sorry, just one yeah. last thing. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> as I'm talking about this as like a bridge between long-term and short-term accommodation, it's interesting that when you look at cities where Airbnb is really big, as you said, it pushes up rental prices not necessarily a huge amount. It varies between neighborhoods, but it does push up long-term rental prices. But it simultaneously pushes down hotel prices and short-term accommodation prices, right? So it really does act in a practical market sense as this bridge between the two that shifts some of that demand and supply because there's a huge disparity. Like hotels charge an enormous amount in a lot of places. And you're right, you had hostels as like a cheap option. But a hostel, you don't even have a room, right? You have a bed sometimes with 20 other people. And so the fact that We've always accepted that supply should be restricted for hotels and for people traveling and that that should just be more expensive. There's no reason that that should be more expensive or that much more expensive. And it's only as expensive as it is because it's been heavily restricted for a long time and we've gotten very used to it. Mm. So I think adding the flexibility isn't necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right about the... I'm actually not sure if hotel prices have gone down with an increase in Airbnb rentals. I haven't looked specifically for that, but I could see that happening. And to your point that it sort of balances out the high prices of hotels, I guess that's that's a benefit for tourists and that's fine. And I guess that's sort of writing maybe a market wrong, if that's what you want to call it. I'm not saying it's a market wrong. Zoning is restricted for hotels. There's extra taxes on hotels. Right. Like it's not just right. the market. Right. But I think it also shows that, I, I don't know, I was listening to what you were saying and, and the whole time I was just thinking, but Airbnb, it's just such a different beast in that unlike a hotel, which those rooms would never be used for long-term accommodation anyway. At best, mm. they're used for medium-term accommodation. You know, like, I think you're allowed to spend a couple months at a hotel. I don't, actually don't know, like, what the maximum amount of time you're allowed to spend in a hotel is, but... I know at some point there were people living in hotels in New York that were, like, super rich celebrity people. Right. I, I imagine at some price, the hotel is willing to just be like, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Unless there's some sort of law that says otherwise, and I just, I don't know, I'm not in the hotel. I've never heard of it. So I just don't know. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that this is different because it actually takes rooms off the market. You know, it takes rooms that could be used by people who actually want and need to live in the city off the market. And that's a big issue. But if you allow the construction of a hotel instead of an apartment building, you're also taking potential apartments off. I mean, so anytime you allow a hotel to be built as like a city zoning commission, you're taking apartments off the market. To extend that argument, a business building, a skyscraper that's just for businesses is taking rooms off the market. I know it's a weak argument. I'm just saying. Right. (laughs) This is just allowing individuals to choose to do it instead of allowing the city's zoning commission to do it. I don't know. I'm not buying that argument. I'm just not. Okay, that's fine. Only because with tourists, you have turnover. People are going to come into the city like the summer in a beach town. It's going to swell with tourists and then they're going to leave. But people are going to live in cities for years and there needs to be enough space for long-term residents, long, long long-term residents, right? And so Airbnb, in effect, does take those rooms off the market. So I want to put more weight there. If I were a legislator in in a city, that to me is a bigger issue, especially because those would be my constituents and my neighbors and my friends. And I would want them to have their needs met first, especially because it's much easier just to build hotels, I would imagine. Well, but if you're building hotels, you're building in inflexibility, right? Because what you're describing is Now, with Airbnb, we have a system where we can adjust supply of hotels and long-term accommodation based upon the demand. If there's a lot of demand 
by tourists, we can take some of those apartments off the market for long-term accommodation and have more Airbnbs because, you know, the price has gone up. If you have a huge amount of demand for people that want to live in the city, it'll shift the other way. And so you add flexibility. If you're building hotels, you're right. You're never going to get more housing out of that. Like that's impossible. So this was actually something that I, I think it's, it's to a point that I wanted to talk about. I'm glad you're, you're sort of bringing this up is that when I was researching this, I noticed that some of the studies said that there might have been a little bit of noise in the data that the statement that Airbnb increases rents mm. coincides with the fact that rents are rising everywhere. Sure. And it's really hard to distinguish between the two. Yeah, it's really hard to disentangle. I think that there's probably some truth in that, although I don't want to diminish the role that Airbnb does probably most likely have in increasing rents. Well, and we can say it's impossible that Airbnb decreases rents. That is yeah. not possible. Yeah. Right, right. Okay, okay, cool. It definitely doesn't decrease rent. We, we can agree there. But I guess what, what I'm trying to say is that if your housing market is sort of static, like it is in a lot of cities now, but more and more people are increasingly renting out their apartments to Airbnb or whatever, you are then actually literally taking housing off the market and therefore it becomes even more expensive. It's even more scarce to find housing. But if you were to just increasingly build more and more housing for the long-term residents, then people who weren't there long-term, who wanted to find a place outside of a hotel and stay in an Airbnb, then they're not necessarily taking housing off the market because there's more housing going onto the market. At the same time, as a city planner, as a legislator, I would want to know what's going on with the Airbnb rentals because then it would inform how much housing to build, where to build, and where to maybe restrict building. Because your point a little bit earlier about how you wouldn't like the fact that governments would use this data to then restrict people from listing their house in Airbnb. Right. I think that ultimately, governments have to act as an arbiter in order to ensure some sort of fairness. Fairness? Fairness in the sense that... He gets to rent his apartment and you don't get to rent your apartment? Well, I mean, if it's to the detriment of both, ultimately, then like... I don't know. If you're doing something that hurts either me or you or both of us, then there needs to be something that stops it. Sure. And, and it's almost impossible to get into this conversation without broadening it to right. housing policy generally. But just one broader point that I want to ask you about then is yeah. how do you feel about vacation homes? Should those be illegal? If you own a home in a city, like let's say I own a home in Barcelona, since we're talking about Barcelona, mm -hmm. and I go there every summer and the rest mm -hmm. of the year I leave it empty. Should that be legal? Uh, yeah. But that's utilizing it even less. Right, right. Well, your question was, should it be legal? And the answer is yes, just like I think that Airbnb should be legal. Okay, so should it be restricted then? What should it be restricted? Right. I'm not sure. Okay. I'm not sure. I, I, I also don't know how much I would want to use the data to necessarily restrict people. I think like the, the, the last sort of policy I would want to implement would be restricting people from listing their houses on Airbnb. Right. I think yeah. the best workaround so far that certain cities have had is that one listing one house policy because it allows you to still rent out your house, but it prevents you from becoming this amateur landlord that rents out five or six properties. And then like, I think if you're making money, then you're a professional landlord. But I, I <laughs> it's true, except you're not paying the taxes tax. as, as like a, as like a normal landlord. Yeah, like a hotel. Well, as, not you're, as you're a normal landlord because a normal landlord would rent apartments to normal I, I, long term. I residents. guess that's true. I guess that's but, true. But at that point, at that point, you're basically like a hotel that has multiple listings and multiple buildings, like multiple sure. rooms, multiple buildings, yeah. and you're just you're getting around it, and that's how you're getting around it. I think that that policy and and I would I wouldn't I wouldn't want to restrict that. I guess what I'm trying to say is that having the data and then figuring out what to do with it is super super important because you have to know. Sure, you should know how many apartments are on it because if you're in a city like Paris that's incredibly popular for people to visit and you right. find out oh, two thirds of our apartments are Airbnbs, then mm -hmm. suddenly you start to say, "Oh, maybe we should take some sort of action." Because you're right, when it gets right. that overwhelming, you do have to take some sort of action. Right. Okay, so if we're talking about how you would go about regulating Airbnb, I think the one owner, one property solution, while it's kind of appealing to a lot of people, I think, because it automatically restricts any entrepreneurialism that anybody could have of having a bunch of properties on the market, <laughs> I think that's a very poor solution. I think the best solution would be a tax. If you want to do it and you want to restrict the number of Airbnbs, what you're essentially saying is you want to make it more expensive to rent an Airbnb. You want people to make less money by renting it to long-term accommodation. So the way you make them make less money is you tax them. And eventually you'll break a break-even point where people start switching their apartments to long-term accommodation because they can make more money than 
if they're renting them in Airbnb. Yeah, but in long-term accommodation, that's still for people who are just visiting the city, not people who are living in the city. No, long-term accommodation would be like a year, if you have a lease for a year. But Airbnb's not, it's not a rental company. You know what I mean? Like, most people don't list Airbnbs for more than three months. I think that's Oh, like, no, no, no. What I'm saying is people will move their apartments off of Airbnb once the tax gets high enough. Oh, that will deter people from doing it. But instead of saying, even though you could make a ton of money and use mm -hmm. your apartments really effectively, mm -hmm. we're going to only let you have one apartment, that doesn't seem to make much sense. It seems to make much more sense to allow this person to be more like a businessman with his apartments and build a little Airbnb empire if he can make it work, but to tax them enough to restrict the amount of Airbnbs. Because then if you mm. start to see, oh, the Airbnbs, there are more than we want to have in the city, you just raise the tax by 1% or 2%. And then you can push the numbers back down. You can adjust it in a very kind of minute way. And it generates revenue for the city. And it doesn't restrict people's absolute liberty to do what they want to do with the property. I think if you want to apply some sort of restriction, that is the best restriction. Now, that doesn't address the problem mentioned about Barcelona, where they might want to restrict for certain neighborhoods because this very touristy neighborhood is all Airbnbs. But you see in cities, there are certain neighborhoods that have a lot of hotels because that's where tourists want to stay and they'll pay a lot to stay in hotels in that like central nice neighborhood. I think that sort of thing should be allowed. There will just be neighborhoods that a lot more people want to stay in Airbnbs because that's the nature of travel and that's the nature of cities, that there are places that are great to visit. Yeah, but what's interesting about that is that in neighborhoods that are really desirable, those people in those neighborhoods who want to rent out their places to Airbnb do so, and then they all do so, and then the neighborhood just completely loses its character and is no longer like the the neighborhood that people wanted to visit anyway. The same thing would happen if you built a hotel. It would only happen if you built hotel after hotel after hotel, but you're right. It would it would destroy the character of the neighborhood and the, and the point of even visiting that neighborhood. I mean, that's what Airbnb sort of, because I get ads for them all the time, when you look at their marketing, they're like, travel the city like a local, check out the places that people don't know, check out the neighborhoods that have culture and life, and it's not tourists, right? But there's like a breaking point where a neighborhood either has like too many Airbnb listings to the point where there's too few locals who actually live there, or they're getting priced out, they just don't live there. And, and there's just all these tourists. In theory, you're right. Well, it, it absolutely happens in cities around the world. Let me check. And if you guys want to send us any feedback about this, we're more than happy to hear. But I want to check your experience with this because I have used Airbnb a number of times and not every time, but mostly I have ended up staying in neighborhoods that I would have never stayed in. Right. There were no hostels. There were no hotels. I would have never, ever gone to that neighborhood if there wasn't Airbnb. So it's definitely pushed me into places that I would have never gone to before. Mm-hmm. Whereas hotels and hostels generally are pretty centrally located. They're all clustered. Mm -hmm. And Airbnb, in my experience, does push you out into other parts of the city that you wouldn't have previously experienced. Now, maybe that's changing as people become more businesslike with Airbnb and it's less individuals doing it, more like these people that have you know a dozen apartments or something. But I find it hard to believe that it's more likely to put you in touristy areas full of tourists than a hotel would be. No, that I, seems I, unlikely. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I agree with that. And that's what I'm trying to say is that neighborhoods that are up and coming or neighborhoods that are undiscovered, as Airbnb would say, <laughs> they, uh -huh. I mean, that's their, that's their business model is they, yeah, they yeah. offer that more local experience than a hotel does because that's like what you visualized when you think of hotels is they're just like these grand things that are in centralized touristy areas whereas airbnb offers that cool ulterior local scene and like i just sure, i don't know yeah i have read memoirs and stories and accounts i mean they're all memoirs. right right of memoirs about who, airbnb people who have written in a sort of what's the word a, a sad longing tone about how they're <laughs> honestly i'm not kidding okay, i mean okay. i mean i recognize these are anecdotes but they're important this is all anecdotal. Right. But I don't think that you can rely 100% on data to always make your decisions about every single thing. I know. What I'm saying is almost everything we're talking about with this is anecdotal because we don't have the numbers 
Airbnb is pretty private about their numbers and it would be hard. Like it's so varied between different cities. We don't have statistical models around these things. Right. So then we can really only take sort of anecdotes about what cities are like. Perfect. Well, then I was reading one about, I'll have to find it and send it to you. Maybe we can put it in the show notes. But it was basically about this person talking about how their neighborhood in New Orleans has changed and that he didn't know any of his neighbors anymore, that it was basically just all tourists and that locals have just moved away. And it was like somewhere like near the French Quarter. And that is like a historical, amazing portion of the city, as well as a portion of the city that is ironically super dense, you know, compared to the rest of the city, as well as easily walkable and close to transit. And so like all the things that we constantly promote as like good for a city has suddenly become this like massive tourist destination. I don't know if it's like on Frenchman Street or off of Bourbon Street or whatever, but, but it is close enough. So it's desirable enough. And there are enough Airbnb listings that it can drop the price enough, I guess, that it has become almost entirely tourists. And because of that, you have this neighborhood that is just walls. You know what I mean? It doesn't have any real life to it. And I think that those sorts of... There's that tourist life. But then... But it's something I always loved about hostels, that hostels, you're surrounded by all of these international people from all over, and you're meeting not locals, but you're meeting interesting, varied people. Sure, you're at a hostel, but an Airbnb, you're not... all these different touristy things. Like, there's nothing wrong with that necessarily. But you're not meeting anyone in Airbnb. No, that's true. That's true. Especially because the main issue that we're talking about here that we're trying to zero in on are the people who don't live in their apartments, but they rent them out and then they try to rent out multiple listings. We're not talking about people who leave on a vacation for a week, rent out their house for a week, and then come back and they live in it because that's not taking any housing off the market. But I don't think those should be treated differently. Those should be treated exactly the same. But they're different. One of them literally takes housing off the market because you're at this point not living in that house. The other person who just leaves on a vacation for a week and then comes back, even though it's going to be lived in either way, One way, the homeowner is able to get more money, which is good for them, or it's just going to be empty. Whereas in the other case, you have these people who are exploiting this program. I mean, exploiting it in the sense that... I love when you say exploited. (laughs) I mean, mean, they're, they're, they're exploiting it in the sense that that wasn't necessarily what Airbnb was meant to be. They're utilizing it. But sure, yes, yes. I mean, yeah. Either way. Exploiting just has so many negative connotations connotations at this point. Sure. No one says they're exploiting workers fairly. Like, that's not a, that's not a thing. But. Sure. Sure. I guess. Sure. They're not using it as it was perhaps initially intended when the organization was first founded. Or how it was marketed. This, this was not what people were thinking that Airbnb was going to be used for. It was not. But one of the greatest things about a free society is that when I buy a hairdryer and I want to use it to like, I don't know dry my clothes instead of dry my hair, I can do that. You know what I mean? Like the fact that people utilize this in a different way is not a bad thing. I think that's a good thing. Agreed. 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 There are two fundamental problems, okay, that we should address that are at the root of this. One of the problems is zoning restrictions. You kind of mentioned it a little bit earlier, and I know that it's a thread running through everything within cities, but I recently was reading about the upcoming San Francisco mayoral election just happened. Oh, it just happened. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I was reading about it a week or two ago. Who? Who? Never mind. We don't need to go into it. It's very close. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Like it went back and forth between the top two contenders. All right. I'll have to look at that after this. By like a couple hundred votes, they're still <sighs> counting. It's, they're still yeah. counting. Anyway, continue. But I was looking at their housing policy platforms, and because I'm always interested in these things, I ended up looking at statistics for zoning in San Francisco, and something like a third of the housing stock in San Francisco is zoned for single family houses. And Mm -hmm. most of the city is restricted to under 40 meters, which is like a three-story building. Mm -hmm. If you look at one of the most expensive cities in the world and one of the fastest growing economic hubs, at least in the United States, and you say a third of it is going to be single family homes, Mm -hmm. why do you think one bedroom apartments are Mm $3,500? It's because Mm -hmm. of those sort of restrictions. You want to talk about taking housing off the market with Airbnb, taking housing off the market by not allowing anyone to build a two-story house is a bigger restriction. Right. And I'm super glad you said that because I I didn't mention this earlier, but that's kind of what I wanted to get at is that while we have this conversation about Airbnb and like potentially what to do about how to make sure that it doesn't negatively affect the housing market, there also needs to be at the exact same time conversations about what to do about the housing market and making sure that in cities like San Francisco, I don't know, they're accommodating for everyone. Because Airbnb, I feel like 
while it doesn't decrease rents, it might not increase them a huge amount, but it definitely in areas where the housing crisis is bad, it absolutely exacerbates it. Yeah, and like it does. it's not its fault in that Airbnb didn't create the housing crisis, but it doesn't help. It it, it hurts housing crisis even more, makes it hurt even more, and it empowers people who are already benefiting off of the housing crisis, which are landlords. But it's a mistake to look at the housing crisis and start to scapegoat the housing crisis on things Agreed. like Airbnb. Agreed. Agreed. When you look at something that has root causes, and maybe it has multiple causes, right. you have to address all of the causes. Airbnb right. is only a small, small portion of the problem within the housing crisis. Right. Well, And if you look at any city, any major city that has a significant housing crisis, most of what is driving it is enormously restrictive zoning laws. You look at San Francisco, you look at London, you look at Paris, all of those places are extremely restrictive. London put in place the green belt to stop the growth of the city. I'm not necessarily against that, but what you're seeing is rapidly rising prices because of extremely restrictive zoning. And this is universally applicable. When you look at places that allow for that construction and allow for that growth, you don't see the same kind of crisis conditions and out of control rents and out of control house prices that you do in other places. Yeah. But it's interesting because you mentioned something just a minute ago, which is the other core problem behind this. And it's something that I don't have as much of a solution for, because obviously my solution for zoning is build taller buildings and more of them. Mm -hmm. I think that solves that largely. Like not to say that San Francisco would be better if it had no single family houses, but if it had five story buildings across all of those single family homes, Mm -hmm. There would be no housing crisis. Mm -hmm. Now, the other issue is kind of tied in with globalization and kind of tied in with what I was talking about with vacation homes. Tourism is growing hand over fist and has been mm -hmm. since the 90s, since the fall mm -hmm. of the Soviet Union, right? Mm -hmm. The world is more integrated than it has ever been with the deregulation of international airlines. You have an enormous amount of cheap flights all over the place. You can fly and from New York to Europe mm -hmm. for 300 euro. It's remarkable. Yeah, and the rise of the middle class around the world. And also, I would say, with the rise of the super wealthy, because there are two phenomenon that kind of dovetail with this. One is the rise of the middle class, as you said, where you look at a place like China, which in the 80s had no one going abroad, like mm -hmm. close to zero people, like a few hundred, maybe a few thousand people going mm -hmm. abroad in a year, <laughs> literally. And okay. this last year, they had something like 120 million people travel abroad. That sort of influx is hard to absorb and does change the face of international travel. At the same time, with the super wealthy, you have a proliferation of people, also largely the Chinese, but a lot of people around the world who are buying homes, not even necessarily vacation homes, but homes so that they can get citizenship other places. Like you look at a market like Vancouver, where right. the prices have doubled largely because of Chinese investment, because people want to be able to send their children to Canada or get citizenship or various other things. And when you start to have more people that have five or six homes... That obviously takes five or six homes. Maybe they're in different cities, but it takes housing off the market in all of those cities and drives up prices in all of those cities. At the same time, with the increase of the global middle class and the increase of tourism, you have additional pressure to take more properties off the market. And so what you see is, while you may still have the same number of people living in Vancouver or living in London, all of the investment from abroad and all the travel from abroad fundamentally shrinks well, it doesn't shrink the supply, but it increases the demand. Right. And there's no obvious solution to how to deal with that because you can't really restrict people from owning multiple homes very easily. Some places like Vancouver have made efforts. Uh -huh. And you don't want to say, no, people can't visit our city or people can't visit our country. And so the solutions to that are elusive, let's just say. I would be much more okay with restricting the amount of housing that one person can own in a city, then I would be restricting like Airbnb, if that makes sense, especially yeah. someone who doesn't even live in the city, someone who just uses basically speculative investing, like people who just buy the property in order to then have it rise in value and then sell it later. And they never sure. once set foot in the in the property. And I think because your point was was great in that you said it's it's just hard to enforce that. I, I, I think like it it's kind of a no brainer that that shouldn't be a thing. Or at least like you should only be able to well, own like maybe one or two. Because at some point, the super wealthy who are doing this could easily own a whole bunch of them. And yeah. that becomes a major, major problem. In fact, distorts the market rather than improving it in any way. I guess what I'm trying to say is that I don't have a solution for it because I think it's really hard. And I feel like governments are running into the issue of how can they actually enforce this. And same thing with Airbnb. There are a lot of people who 
are flying under the radar who own multiple listings and make money off multiple listings. And then they just take the money, invest it back into the property and like convert like a four bedroom apartment or whatever into a one bedroom apartment. And then, so they've, they've taken four units off the, off the market, converted into a single unit and then rent that out to a super wealthy Uh, person. I see what you're saying. And that's really bad. And that's like the sort of the easiest example to go to, but it's definitely something that happens around the world. And so I think that that's bad, but it's also a really hard solution or there's no really good solution. And I don't know what it would be. And you see that sort of thing in a lot of Chinese cities where you have increasing numbers of wealthier people that want more space, but you also have increasing numbers of people overall. So it's pushing out more and more right. poorer people. And this is why I think that it's really, really important for governments to know what's going on in their cities at all times and to use massive amounts of data to analyze and figure out where we should build, what we should build, what needs to be restricted. Because ultimately, their role is to figure out that balance between, okay, how do we improve the lives of the people who live here while also allowing for tourism to happen, while also improving the economy you know, in foreign investment? Markets can do this pretty well. I mean, generally speaking, you say that, but at the same time, a lot of places where they have been allowed to run completely wild has not worked out for certain people. For others, it's worked out really well. And there's a lot of issues that come with that. There has to be some sort of guiding hand in some way. Well, one of the things that I struggle with with this and when I talk about markets being useful in these things is that when you're talking about people being let run wild, like Houston is often what people look at in terms of allowing people to run wild with what they've done. And we saw all of the issues with the hurricane where a lot of people had built in bad flood zone areas and things like that. I think restrictions in terms of health and safety make sense, but we also don't see a lot of the invisible regulation, right? We don't see some of the invisible stuff like the investment in roads, the investment in highways, as we talked about over the last two episodes with Walkable City, all of that investment in building roads and requiring people to build parking and things like that forces the city to suburbanize or it incentivizes the city to suburbanize. When you look at zoning restrictions, I think both of us would agree the biggest thing causing a housing crisis around the world is zoning restrictions. Okay. And it's hard to imagine that a market where people had flexibility with how high to build would be worse <laughs> than the heavy-handed government intervention. And again, I'm not saying that you necessarily need to have explosive factories in the middle of the city. Like you can have restrictions on this. I, I agree. There there should be some sort of restrictions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the idea, like with Airbnb, that we should intervene more in a more detailed way to say these six guys can do it, but not the seventh guy in this neighborhood. I don't that know. seems if the seventh guy extraordinarily tips... difficult to manage effectively. Okay, I guess there's a to do between... that efficiently and to right. where you're not destroying a huge amount of value for the citizens and being right. cumbersome and difficult to deal with the bureaucracy. And what if this guy wants to appeal and say, mm-hmm. "No, I want to have my apartment listed," and then you have to deal with some bureaucrat who sends you to some other department. The opportunity for this to get extraordinarily bogged down and difficult, like you already see it when anybody wants to build anything pretty much in any country Mm -hmm. around the world, Mm -hmm. where Mm -hmm. it's extremely difficult to get planning permission. Mm -hmm. That is often what is holding these sorts of things back. And it's even more difficult in terms of the second houses and things, because you have a number of countries that are either unstable or undemocratic, and Mm -hmm. property rights are not very well respected. And that's why you see so much money flowing from China into Canada and the Northwest of the United States, because they don't trust that they'll be able to keep their money in China necessarily. So they want to put it in a place that respects property rights more. And you see London is getting full up of Russian money because they don't trust that they'll be able to keep their money in Russia. So you have these places where money is pouring out and pouring into housing, which is the kind of most safe, relaxed asset that you don't have to worry about. Well, then I guess my question is, because To me, I view it as like a balancing act because ultimately local government is responsible and concerned with the well-being of its citizens as it should be. Yeah. But also I agree with you in that like people should be allowed to do what they want with their money and I don't necessarily want to restrict too many things. But to me, this whole debate comes down to how much control should the government have over what it regulates? Yeah. Because ultimately everything it does in theory is supposed to benefit its own citizens. Yes. And if it's ideals of like, yes, you as a foreigner or you as someone who wants to put a billion properties on the market through Airbnb, if they have the the value of the freedom of like, yes, you could do that, ultimately, there has to be some sort of block, there has to be some sort of restriction there. Because you can't just let it run completely wild, or else you're going to have people who just take advantage of it, especially people with the money and means to do so. Just like with the foreign investment, to me, the line is drawn when 
the amount of foreign investment or for Airbnb, like the amount of property that is being rented and used as like money makers is hurting the people who live in that city. Because ultimately, if you're making money and it's hurting people who live in the city and you don't even live there, or you do live there, but only part time or whatever, it's it's bad. And I wow. think that's where you draw the line. And I'm trying to figure out how do you draw that line? Like, what does that actually look like? And that's why I thought this Barcelona article was super interesting. Yeah, no, you're right. It is. And, and it is difficult to figure out where to draw lines with all of this. <laughs> I think generally, we should side on the defense of individual liberty and you're you're right it's it's really hard but at the but at the detriment of others well you could say that it's to the detriment of everybody that wants to live in my house that i own my house and that i live in it and anybody else that wants to live in it is hurt because they can't live in it but if i'm not doing (laughs) anything to directly harm someone else like you're talking about and this is a very important fundamental disagreement i think between people that care about individual liberty versus people that care about broad welfare and we don't need to get too bogged down in this, but the difference is people that really care about individual liberty want to stop people from directly harming other people. People that really care about broad welfare want to stop people from indirectly harming other people. And if I'm not doing anything directly to harm you, I'm not punching you, I'm not stealing from you, I'm not burning down your house, I'm not polluting your neighborhood, because I am using my property to benefit myself and benefit other people and doing nothing to you. You're not involved in the situation at all. It's hard to see how I could be directly harming you. It's hard to define that in my mind as harming you because you're not involved in what I'm doing at all. Sure, if that's the case. Sure, if you are not directly harming. Right, so if I have an apartment and I don't rent it to you, I rent it to somebody else. Right. I'm not harming you because we have no relationship. Right, but if there are enough people that are renting out apartments. I mean, this is the debate with Airbnb. If there are enough people that are renting out apartments for money in order to benefit themselves, which is fine. Right. But if they rent out enough and there's like enough people who are doing it, that it therefore increases the rents for people around the city who can't afford to live in the city anymore, people who live there forever, then that's bad. It doesn't matter if you are not even thinking about that person. If you're not purposefully trying to hurt them, you are still indirectly hurting them. And to me, I don't know if there's that big of a difference between indirectly hurting someone and directly hurting someone. There's a huge difference. But in either way, the person is still being hurt, right? Yes, but the the question of responsibility and the burden of requiring you to take action is different. So if I eat a meal and someone else doesn't get to eat a meal because there wasn't enough food in the world, then I'm not doing anything to harm them directly. But they maybe suffered because I ate my meal and they weren't able to eat theirs. Do you know what I mean? Do you, do you understand the distinction that I'm making? You know, I, th- I think so. Like, I get the distinction, but if there's a finite amount of food and you're taking that food from them and they can't access the food because you took it, I don't know. Because if you're ascribing fault in this situation, Mm -hmm. then what you're saying is you have an obligation to provide this for other people. So not only should you not harm other people, but you have an obligation to provide for other people, right? So with this, with the apartments, if you're saying, I'm harming people by renting my apartment on Airbnb, that means Mm -hmm. I have an obligation to use my apartment to the benefit of this other person that wants to rent it. Mm. That restricts my freedom to use my property when I've never interacted with this person. I'm not doing anything to harm them. The harm that I'm creating is by not giving them something. So because I'm not giving them something, I am harming them. And that's the distinction, right? Like That's the distinction between people that say you need to provide for other people versus people that say you provide for yourself. And if people give you value, then you give them value back. That's the kind of crux core distinction between socialism and capitalist thinking Mm. and it's harder with a city it's more complicated with the city because you do interact every day so like i got into an argument one time about somebody smoking and well you're just doing that to yourself in your own house but if somebody else is breathing the smoke above you or next door or something you are directly harming them so the bounds of your freedom are automatically restricted when you're living with a lot of other people. You have to. Right. In terms of your ability to make noise, in terms of your ability to do dangerous things, your ability to burn things and make smoke and things. But to extend it to the point where you have to use your property to the benefit of other people instead of using it to your own benefit, that is taking it to another level. Yeah. Maybe that's not... I guess that's not the argument I'm trying to make. It's more of just whether the system works or not, which it most likely probably doesn't, if you exist in this system, the system has to write itself in certain ways. I'm talking about like sort of the way that the, the housing market or... Yeah, the housing market and the governments are able to regulate it or want to regulate okay, it. And sure. while you might not be using your property 
to hurt other people, or I would say properties, because again, I'm, I'm only talking about people who rent out multiple properties in cities and literally take apartments off of the market. But there's no material difference between somebody that rents one apartment and one, somebody that rents two apartments. Like they're doing the same thing. It is when apartments are scarce. And that's why this conversation always has to come along with, we need to build more apartments in more cities. Sure. Sure. And I would ultimately love to see that happen. But because Airbnb puts further pressure on the housing market, there has to be some policies that offer stopgap measures between now and when there's no longer a housing crisis. Because like that housing crisis won't go away for a long time. Yeah. And because of that, there are going to be a lot of people who are being hurt by the housing crisis. And because of that, we have to figure out what to do with Airbnb and what to do with how people can use Airbnb and things like it to generate their own personal wealth. Because again, I want them to do that. But if what you are doing directly or indirectly hurts others, there has to be some sort of, inter of intervention. I just, I feel like- You are forgetting that it benefits a lot of people too. Not only the hot property owner, no, but anybody uh, renting it. Like there's a huge number of parties that have benefited from this. Right, right. I, I agree. But the people who get hurt by a housing crisis are always- low-income people, and then increasingly middle-income people. Sure. Because the housing crises are just getting crazy expensive. That applies and when anything gets scarce and expensive, though. The people sure. that are harmed or the poorest or the least able to pay for it. Well, yeah. I mean, that's that's my point, though. Those were the people that were harmed by hotels being expensive before, right? There was the poor people and middle-income well, people. Well, no. They were never trying to stay in hotels. Well, but they were never able to. Like, the reason why travel has exploded in the last couple of decades is because travel has gotten cheaper. People can fly more easily. People can stay right. at cheaper hostels and Airbnbs and things like that. And right. so it has increased access of all of those goods to the poorer and middle-income people. Back in the 50s and 60s, no, but flights were incredibly luxurious things. Yeah, that yeah. Do. But that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about <laughs> we're not talking about low income people trying to access tourism. I'm talking about low income people trying to access a house, trying to access. But like, they relate, right? Sure, they relate in like there are other sides of the market. Like the fact that it's gotten so much cheaper, everything associated with traveling mm -hmm. has broadened the access to that. And you're talking about reducing the benefits, reducing that price drop in travel in order to reduce rental prices. Like if you restrict the number of Airbnbs, Airbnb costs are going to rise. Okay, I see what you're saying. And then hotels can raise prices again and all of that. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm more okay with increasing the costs for tourists if it benefits people of the city, like sure. as a judgment call. Because that's more of a luxury. Living is not a luxury. <laughs> right. Living is not a luxury and should not be a luxury. In fact, <laughs> right. I think we can make yes. an argument that everyone should be able to live and everyone should be able to have food and water and housing and shelter and stuff. But not everyone can have food and housing and shelter in a given city, right? Well, New York cannot house the entire population of the United States. No. So at some point, there will be restrictions on that freedom to move there. Right. And the only way to do that is with prices to meter out what that is. Or you could have a lottery. You get to move to New York now and no one else gets to move there. <laughs> no, that sounds, that sounds terrible. That's not a yeah. good system. You know what I mean? Like pri the price mechanism is the only effective mechanism to determine these things. And it's difficult when you have a couple cities that everyone wants to move to. And it's exacerbated, as we said, because of the extraordinary restrictions on construction and things like Airbnb. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a naughty, difficult problem to grapple with. Yeah, there just isn't enough housing in these cities for everyone and any sort of movement that the market tries to make because like airbnb was just these two guys they were trying to make rent in san francisco and they were like well we can't make rent let's rent out our couch they're doing couch surfing yeah. but being like you gotta pay for trying this to get paid, yeah yeah exactly and then they grew airbnb so that's like two people who literally could not make rent who tried to figure out how to make rent and they came up with this solution which then became profitable for lots of other people which is now increasing the rent for other people. And that's what but that's what's incredible about this. It's true. There's the cyclical nature of that. And so it's just it's just hard. It's really hard because, you know, we do want people to come into our cities and like visit them and enjoy them and spend money on them. Yes. But the people who live in the cities also need to be accommodated and they need to be accommodated first. I don't think any city around the world is ever going to challenge that. And if they do, then they're not being faithful to their constituents. True. So how do we do that? Honestly, I think that restricting the amount of housing that you or amount of like properties that you can rent out per person probably works. Let me just, again, I come back to the problem with restricting the number of properties. Mm -hmm. One of the incredible optimistic aspects of Airbnb is that, as you said, these two guys faced with a problem, came up with a creative solution that has in a very real way changed the world. 
to the extent that we are restricting people's ability to be creative and innovate and come up with new ways to deal with problems like this. And again, you know, that bridge that I think of Airbnb as between long-term housing and short-term housing, it has the potential for there to be a lot of creativity in there, not just in terms of Airbnb, but in terms of every single person that owns an apartment on Airbnb. And I could easily see somebody coming up with some sort of setup where they have 10 apartments on Airbnb and they figure out, well, we can offer it for three months at a time and we can save money and make it work better and something like that. To the extent that we can just make price the restriction, you allow for flexibility and you allow for creativity. And Mm. I think we always need to be very aware that whenever you add on very prescriptive regulation, there are potentially hundreds of businesses that could change the world in a way like Airbnb that you're wiping out of existence before they could even come into existence. And so that potential for them to come up with something like I've often thought for those types of people that want to live abroad or want to be able to work in a location independent style and they work online, they do things on the internet, maybe they do something with software or they do something with media production or anything else. Maybe they want to move every three months and they want to have shorter term accommodation instead of for a year. The potential for people to come up with creative solutions to fill that need, I think is extremely valuable. Or people that go to university for six months and want to leave and get Mm -hmm. out of a lease. That sort of thing can be extremely valuable. And allowing for that creativity and that flexibility is something that we should really fight to preserve. And so trying to address these things with limited regulations and taxes that allow the market to flush it out and flush out all that creativity, which the market is so good at flushing out, is Mm. an ideal general framework to work within. Because we've seen with cities and with zoning laws and Mm. everything that we've seen over the last 100 years that we've complained about repeatedly, that when you have very prescriptive restrictions, like we have with minimum parking requirements and things like that, these prescriptions maybe make sense when they're first made, but they sit there on the books for 30 years. And once they're there, it's really hard to get them to go away and to change them and to reform Mm. the system. Uh And so the less heavy-handed and the less prescriptive we can be, the more likely we are to have creative progress going forward. That's my appeal, my my small government appeal. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I, uh, yeah, I'm down to, I'm down to think about that. I, uh, actually, now that you brought that up, sort of like to circle back to the very beginning of this conversation, Airbnb sharing data with Barcelona is one city's solution, or at least potential solution to deal with this problem with Airbnb. And I don't know if I would ever want to assign a standard solution to every city for Airbnb. Yeah, I guess I'm heartened by the fact that Airbnb is willing to open up in one city to do what that city wants, you know, and, well, and they because, seem because relatively they, flexible to adjust to different cities I, requirements. I think so. I mean, it's been, I don't know, not in the beginning. I'm not saying that they're eager for it, but right. they are working out bespoke deals with particular cities yeah. rather than saying, no, this is what we worked out with New York and this is what goes for everybody. Right, right. They are. They're, they're at least doing it somewhat now. Maybe they're doing it. Piecemeal. Once yeah. they're forced to. I would like to see it more. I would like to see, I don't know. Sharing of data is definitely like an easy one. Have them come up with suggestions for what they think would help to solve mm-hmm. some of these problems, maybe. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I, I think the reason why these things have to be kind of piecemeal is the problem is very different in different places. Right. Like, I'm sure the problem in San Francisco is much worse than the problem in Fresno. And the problem in London is probably right. much worse than the problem in Liverpool. Because people just don't really go to Liverpool as much as they go to London. And so there aren't as many Airbnbs on the market, and it's not as large of a percentage of the housing in the city. And so it's just a different thing. And it would be different for cities that have one real major downtown where it's all centralized versus cities that have a bunch of different kind of polar areas. Well, I can't believe we haven't talked about this yet. But one thing I was just thinking about is that for cities that are walkable, Airbnb is probably a much bigger issue. Whereas for cities that aren't walkable... It isn't necessarily as much because you have to spend more money on cars. And plus, in non-walkable cities, there's more of a diffusion of the Airbnbs in terms of just geographic space. Because if you have to drive anyway, it doesn't matter so much if it's a five-minute drive versus seven-minute drive. Right. Whereas that distance, if you're walking, is large. Right. So each city has to come up with their own solutions because geographically, their listings are going to be either more concentrated or less concentrated in certain areas or in general. And so like knowing what to do, it takes a lot of like, I think the role of government 
for Airbnb and for like sort of regulating the housing market is like being open and proactive to work with these companies. And hopefully these companies are also open and proactive to working with the city government to make sure that they find solutions for everything. Yeah, hopefully. Because if it really does get to the point where you have an entire neighborhood of Airbnb rentals and it mm-hmm. really does disintegrate or kill the neighborhood, that mm-hmm. would be something that, you know, we probably would want to avoid. Like that, <laughs> there yeah. are greater excesses when things get too out of whack. And if you have a place, if you have a city that is extraordinarily popular to go to and has very few hotels and it hasn't adjusted to have enough hotels built, you might have a big swing that suddenly a whole neighborhood gets taken over. And, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe there should be some sort of safeguards for that kind of excess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we'll see. I'm heartened by this Barcelona advancement, but, you know, a lot of major cities have to respond and need to respond. Generally speaking, though, I think Airbnb is a good thing. And all of this is muddling forward. You know what I mean? Like this is figuring things out and moving forward to solve some of these problems. And to the extent that this pushes cities to address their larger housing issues and their larger (laughs) issues around overly restrictive zoning, Mm -hmm. hopefully it's, you know, not a bad thing. Hopefully it's not. And, you know, this also would maybe make cities take a second look at hotels and how hostels and hotels are regulated and all of that, because those are probably the kinds of regulations that most cities have not looked at in 30 or 50 years. And it's just been how it's been forever. And now Mm -hmm. that you have something like Airbnb, you have to adapt and unify the entire system so that Mm -hmm. it's all governed in the same way. And maybe that will cause progress in other areas of city regulation. We can hope. (laughs) We can hope. We can hope. We can hope. Cool. You want to get out of here? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah. (laughs) Is that about it? I don't know. Anything else? I don't know. You know, I I think we should just continue to look for Airbnb developments. And if you are interested in this issue, like talking to your local government official will absolutely help. Every city can and should work with Airbnb to find the correct solution for themselves. And it takes a lot of proactive movement on the government side, but also citizen involvement to make it happen. Yeah, as a real quick last thing, if somebody's really passionate about this particular issue, do you have any quick suggestions of how they might go about it? Because you're a relatively activist kind of person. (laughs) You've done things. You've talked to people. I've been involved. Yeah, I mean, I've been involved enough in politics to know that if you call, they actually listen, even if it doesn't seem like it. At least in the United States. (laughs) Right, 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 right. And it might seem futile. I know it kind of does. But if you are a constituent, call your representative, call your local city council member. And one of the things we said sort of at the outset of this podcast was like, you're going to have much more swaying power with your local officials than you are your national, federal, state, whatever officials. Not saying, again, that your voice doesn't matter at those levels, but there are just so many fewer voices at the at the local level. Yeah, those national people, farther. they hear a lot from a lot of people. Right. So you need to get like 100 people to do it rather than like 10, which you could do in your neighborhood. And my best advice is contact them, call them, go to meetings, do your research on the candidates that are up for next election or on the proposals on the ballot, whatever comes your way. And it's difficult because a lot of these things are not necessarily on the front page of a certain candidate's platform. Like no, these no, are, these are not this bright, right. loud center of the argument kind of things. <laughs> that's what I was going to say is if you get the chance, question them. Yeah, yeah. You know, sort of force the conversation on them. Ask like, how do you feel at Airbnb? Because they're most likely talking about the housing crisis if you live in like yeah. a city with one, but they might not be talking about the housing crisis plus all the things that surround it, like Airbnb, like transportation. Like they might not be talking about the connections between the two. They might be saying like, this is great, or this is bad, but the connections between the two and what that regulation looks like is really important. Yeah, all of that relates. And to force them to, to, to talk to you about that. And there are plenty of people running for office for like city council in most places they probably have never thought about these sorts of things and never had this be an issue. Um, <laughs> or yeah, or like, like that's not yeah, uncommon. Or they've never been challenged on it. Certainly, yeah. And I would say you're absolutely right. Calling your representative, they don't know what you're thinking about and they don't know that something's an issue unless people communicate with them that it's an issue. Uh-huh. Politicians are very aware of what people are talking to them about. If no one ever brings up an issue, uh-huh. they don't think about it. Uh-huh. And so they may not listen to you, they may not change their mind, but just being aware that some people care about it and being aware of your thoughts on it are valuable. So yeah, give them a call. Show up to some sort of meeting. Right. Don't just decide it at the ballot box every two years, every couple months, every four years, whatever. Yeah, because you can change people's minds in office. Yeah. And in fact, you should. Yes. I 
100% believe that being an active political citizen does not just mean voting every four years and you're done with it. Right. You know, there's so much more to actually like being involved. And, you know, if you call them, you know, focus on those restrictive zoning laws, not Airbnb, <laughs> you know, just my advice. But uh, uh, those would probably be actually harder to get people to change. <laughs> we haven't done an episode on zoning yet. No, we're going to have to get into that another time. Yeah, I know, I know. No, we're definitely going to do that today. Yeah. But I just realized we should definitely schedule that at some point. It's coming up. For sure. For sure. You can find our show notes at subjectradio.com slash polis slash 008. We now have a Twitter account. So if you want to send us particular topic ideas or tell us how stupid we are about our stances (laughs) on policy, anything you want. Please do. We are at polis podcast. That's P-O-L-I-S-P-O-C-P-O-D. Sorry. At (laughs) polis podcast. That's P O. At Polis Podcast, that's P-O-L-I-S-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. There we go. That's what it is. I can spell. And you can go like our Facebook page, which is also Polis Podcast. I guess I will talk to you in two weeks, Ben. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Ben. Have a good one. Oh, oh, yes. and we're going to put yes. the article links up on the website. Oh, yeah. We'll have links to anything that we mentioned, any articles that we mentioned in the show notes. You'll be able to find them on any app that you download the podcast in or on the website. Yeah, check them out. All right, Ben. Cool. <laughs> I'll talk to you in two weeks. See ya.